You're listening to Epitaph. The lore of the modern vampire is well established. Everyone seems to know that they have fangs, drink blood, dislike garlic and crucifixes, and can be killed with sunlight or a stake through the heart. But our modern mythology has roots that run far deeper than many realize. It has grown from a widespread Eastern European belief that the dead, even after they'd been buried, could return to harm the living. In this special Halloween season series, Epitaph will explore the roots of these legends to find out where they came from, because sometimes monsters are real. This is episode two, Bella Kish, the Vampire of Zincoda. In May of 1916, Martin Grishinsky went to the rental house he owned at 9 Kossuth Street in the small town of Zinkota, Hungary, to see if there were any repairs that needed to be done before he could rent it out again. The previous owner had been a good tenant, and was well liked by his neighbors. But like many Hungarian men, he had been killed fighting in World War I. Grishinsky decided to begin with the barrels stacked in the woodshed. His writer had mentioned that he was stockpiling gasoline before the war, and now that gasoline was being rationed, the contents could have some value. He attempted to open one to verify its contents, but discovered that, oddly, it had been welded closed. He found a way to puncture the container and was immediately overwhelmed by the scent. It wasn't gasoline. It was something else. Something putrid. He brought a friend with a background in chemistry to help him identify the odor. His friend told him the smell wasn't chemical. It was the smell of death. When they finally managed to wrench the top off the barrel, he found himself staring at the face of a dead woman, perfectly preserved in wood alcohol. Wood alcohol, also known as methanol, is toxic when ingested, inhaled, or even just absorbed through the skin. When ingested, it breaks down into formaldehyde, and because of its preservative properties, it had been used in embalming in ancient Egypt. Grishinsky quickly called the police. The local police in the small village didn't have the resources, so they reached out to the police in Budapest, and they sent their chief detective, Dr. Carolee, or Charles Nagy, to investigate. The tenant had hired a housekeeper, an older woman named Mrs. Jakubik, who had been keeping an eye on the house while he was away. And she was furious when she saw people going in and out of the house and prying open the barrels, until Grishinsky and Negi told her what they'd found inside. Each drum they pried open contained another body. Each of the bodies had had a handkerchief stuffed into their mouths, and each of them had been strangled with a cord, and in some cases, they were entombed with the cord still wrapped around their necks. Professor Ballas Kenieris of the Police Medical Laboratory was tasked with performing the autopsies and concluded that the women had been dead for two years or more, but they were well-preserved enough that he was able to gather fingerprints. Unfortunately, all that revealed at the time was that none of them had criminal records. They were also each still easily recognizable and could be identified if the police only had names with which to work. Detective Nagy wanted to question the former tenant, but the landlord, Grishinsky, explained that that was impossible. That man, Bella Kish, had been killed. Despite that, Detective Nagy sent word to the military of what had been found, and in case Kish had accomplices, he contacted the Postal Service and asked that they hold any messages addressed to him. Then, convinced that she must have had some knowledge of Kish's activities, Detective Nagy detained and questioned Mrs. Jakubik. She swore that she knew nothing of the crimes, that her employer had been a kind man who paid her well. She showed Nagy and the other detectives Kish's bedroom and a locked door to a room that she had promised to never enter, and then she took the key from her apron. 
When Nagy and his detectives opened the room, they found it lined with bookcases. They noted that he'd owned an unusual number of books on poisons. And when Nagy began to go through the contents of his desk, he began to understand that this investigation may be much larger than the six bodies they'd already discovered. In the desk, he found correspondence between Kish and literally hundreds of women. Kish had carefully filed letters and photos from 74 of them, so that the letters from each of those women were kept together and in order. Nagy pieced together Kish's scheme. Using a variety of aliases, including D. Keller, Elmer Nagy, and Franz Hoffman, Kish had placed carefully worded advertisements in newspaper matrimonial columns, describing himself as a widower who was eagerly searching for female companionship, often portraying himself as a man of considerable means and always requiring that the women provide information about their own financial resources. When a letter would arrive, he'd visit with the victim and lavish her with money and attention. He'd ask her about her family, focusing on the women who didn't have close relatives or people nearby who would miss them if they disappeared. Many of the letters seemed to indicate that the women had sent money, but though Nagy hadn't heard of Bella Kish in Budapest, police had been looking for Franz Hoffman. A young woman named Louisa Roost, a daughter of a well-known shop owner, said that one evening she'd met a man at the theater and that he'd taken her for a long drive. He'd taken her to his summer house in Sincota, and before they returned to the city, they had dinner and he'd invited her to his flat in the city near the Margaret Bridge. There, he offered to tell her her fortune. Once they arrived, he offered her a pale yellow liquor and had her gaze intently into a small crystal globe. She did as he'd instructed, but began to feel dizzy. She barely had time to notice that Hoffman had moved beside her and slipped a green silk cord around her neck. She woke in Erzabet Park with her jewelry and money gone. Three weeks later, another young woman told police that she'd met a handsome, well-dressed man on Sunday morning after she'd been to service at the Therese Veros Church. He'd grabbed her by the arm and pulled her back out of the way to keep her from being hit by a passing taxi. Then, together they walked, and as they talked, he told her that his name was Franz Hoffman, a jeweler. They shared an interest in spiritualism, and as her husband was away in Paris, she invited him to dinner at her home. After dinner, they went to a cafe until, at two o'clock in the morning, he persuaded her to go back to his apartment. Her story ended in much the same way as Louisa Roost's. Hoffman had offered to tell her her fortune. He'd given her a pale yellow liquor, and then he attempted to strangle her. She'd been found by police laying unconscious in a doorway where he'd dumped her body. Both women, though, were unable to identify the flat, and with little else to go on, the police had been unable to find or apprehend Hoffman. Now they knew why. Hoffman had just been an alias. After publishing the signatures and aliases that Kish had used in the same newspapers where he'd placed ads, police were contacted by a 27-year-old woman, Rosa Diossi. Rosa had admitted to having been Kish's mistress. She'd last heard from him in 1914 when he'd written from the front in Serbia. She was shocked and incredulous when she'd learned of his crimes. Others also contacted police with similar stories. They'd answered an advertisement, met the handsome Kish, and were quickly invited to become his mistress with promises of marriage. They were expected to hand over their life savings, and all had been invited to his home in Singota. Within days, Detective Nagy had determined that Kish's ads had garnered more than 174 marriage proposals. Many of those women had survived because they'd either not gone, had declined to offer their savings, or in some cases had no savings to offer, or had disliked being rushed into a sexual relationship. Kish had wasted no further time on them. But the 74 women in the carefully curated files had all been engaged to Kish. 
and from the letters, Nagy believed that he'd identified at least 30 victims. Nagy and his detectives had identified at least 18 women who'd written to Bella Kish that had afterwards gone missing. More than 160 pawn tickets, mostly for women's clothing and jewelry, were found concealed under the carpeting of the dining room. A five-foot-long wooden box found near the barrels contained a number of women's dresses. One of those dresses had the letters KV embroidered on a sleeve. Detective Nagy determined that this had belonged to Catherine Varga, a beautiful young widow from Budapest, who'd sold a profitable dressmaking business before going to be with her prospective husband in Singota. She'd been missing for nearly four years. A detective working for Nagy discovered that two women, Julianne Paschik and Elizabeth Komaromi, had both sued Kish, accusing him of taking their money with a promise of marriage, but neither case had gone to court because the women had failed to appear and could no longer be located. As the families of other missing women came forward, Mrs. Stephen Toth told Detective Nagy that her daughter, Greta, had gone to Budapest to work a decade before in 1904. When visiting her daughter, Greta had introduced her to a man named Bella Kish, who'd persuaded her to give him money on the promise of marrying Greta. But the wedding never happened. Greta later sent a letter that Kish had broken off their engagement and, broken-hearted, she had decided to go to America. Mrs. Toth immediately went to Sincota to confront Kish, who claimed that he'd only wanted to delay the marriage, but that Greta had become so angry that she left. In reality, Kish had forced Greta to write the letter to her mother before strangling her. Greta Toth's mother had identified her dress among those found at Kish's property. Another dress was identified by Vivian Steffelot as having belonged to her missing daughter. Anna Novak had left for her job as a cook abruptly in 1911, but she'd left her trunk behind at her employer's home. In it was a sheet from a newspaper with one of Kish's ads circled in red pencil. It read, Widower urgently seeks acquaintance of mature, warm-hearted spinster or widow to help assuage loneliness mutually. Send photo and details. Marriage possible and even desirable. But despite having the names of likely victims, only Catherine Varga's body was amongst those found in the initial six barrels. So Detective Nagy expanded the scope of the investigation and began looking into addresses that Kish had used in paying for his ads. One of the addresses Kish had given while paying for his ads proved to be that of the local undertaker, as if Kish were making a joke of it. Another address used, 14 Kossuth Street, was an empty lot next to Kish's home in Sincota. So the detectives began digging. A young woman in an advanced state of decomposition was found buried under about six inches of earth in the same area where Bella had sometimes been seen taking walks with his female companions. She was identified by an engraving inside of a wedding ring that she wore. She'd left her husband, a furrier in Vienna, taking with her a large quantity of jewelry and an even larger amount of money. In Budapest, she'd sent a letter to a friend, and then she'd disappeared. Isabel Koblitz, niece of the Austro-Hungarian Minister of Commerce was found nearby. She'd had an interest in spiritualism and had disappeared from Vienna in July of 1913. A total of 24 bodies were recovered, most of them sealed in metal barrels on the property that Bella Kish had rented in Sincota. Amongst them were 23 women and one man. 14 of the victims were positively identified. All of them had been strangled to death. However, the investigators also noted another odd detail. The bit that would earn Bella Kish's moniker as the Vampire of Sincota was that each of the victims were also said to have bore two puncture marks on their necks, and they were all completely drained of blood. In 
It's difficult to know just exactly how much of the lore surrounding Bella Kish, the man who'd become known as the Vampire of Sincota, is true. Most of the details that I'm going to present to you come from contemporary newspaper articles, but even those are hard to sort out. Some of the reports describe him as tall, thin-faced, and dark-haired. Others suggest that he was short, pudgy, and blonde. Photos that are supposedly of him that had been taken shortly before he entered the Austro-Hungarian military in 1918 suggest that the latter description was more accurate. But to be fair, with so much conflict, it's fair to wonder if the photos are even of the right Bella Kish. Wikipedia lists the names of his parents as Janos Kish and Veran Viroga. Genealogical research does indeed bring up a Bella Kish born to those parents on July 29th of 1877 in Itzhak, Hungary. But the same search shows more than 650 other church baptismal records for people named Bella Kish born between 1873 and 1879. That Wikipedia entry also states that he had a second wife and two children that are unaccounted for in any contemporaneous reports about him. As there is no source citation provided in Wikipedia for that particular detail, I believe the information is questionable at best. Without something that reliably links our vampire, Bella Kish, with those two parents, I don't feel comfortable saying that that was indeed the right man. The information could belong to him, or it could just as easily belong to really any of the other Bella Kishes who'd lived in that region of Hungary at the time. And here's the thing. Bella Kish was such a common name that, knowing that he frequently used other aliases, it's possible that that wasn't even his real name. What the reports don't vary on is that he had hypnotic blue eyes. Some of the stories suggest that he had few friends in Sincota, and that he mostly kept to himself. Others state that he was known for his generosity, often giving to those in need and hosting lavish parties at the hotel across the street from his home. Many repeat that, even without formal education, he spoke knowledgeably about the humanities, literature, history, and art. He also had a fascination with astrology, palmistry, and the occult. Some stories state that his home in Sincota was at 7 Rakosi Street, though most agree that it was at 9 Kossuth Street. Some suggest he'd moved in as early as 1900s, while others say that it was the early spring of 1912. The stories are consistent that he was married to a young woman named Maria, or Marie, who is said to have been 15 years his junior. Some suggest that Bella and Marie were married in 1912, and, as the reports are that he'd been attracting victims through his ads dating back as far as 1903, I'd suggest that he likely met Marie through one of his ads as well. Most reports suggest that he brought his young wife with him when he moved to Sincota, and that would make her a preteen child if the earlier date is believed, so I prefer to think that the latter date, the spring of 1912, is probably the correct one. Their relationship is another mystery. There is no surviving indication of what sort of marriage they had, if they were happy, or if Bella was controlling or abusive. What is known is that, after moving to Sincota, Bella continued to travel frequently to Budapest for business. And while he was away, within just a few weeks of their arrival in town, Marie began an affair with a young artist named Paul Bikari. She and Paul would frequently be seen together walking through the gardens near the Kish home, and rumors of their illicit rendezvous began to spread. In December of 1912, Bella reported to a neighbor that she was gone. After returning from Budapest one afternoon, he'd found the house locked. Inside, on the dining room table, was a letter from Maria stating that she had run away to America with her lover, Paul Bakari. No one else ever saw the letter, so far as I can tell. In anger, he claims that he burned it. Though everyone believed that she'd left with Paul, in reality, both Marie and Paul were in the barrels. Without Marie around, Kish hired an older woman, 
Mrs. Jakubik, to take care of the home for him while he was away. Kish rented an apartment near the Margaret Street Bridge in Budapest so that, ostensibly, if his business affairs in Budapest lasted late, he would have a place to stay, and he posted advertisements in the Budapest newspaper seeking women interested in marriage. He'd often bring the women back to his home in Sincota. The townspeople noticed many of his female guests, but, as he kept his romantic affairs private, he never introduced the ladies to his neighbors. In addition to his female companions, they noticed that Kish also began stockpiling metal barrels in the shed on his property. This drew the attention of the local police, who paid him a visit to ask what it was about, concerned that he was storing illegal liquor. Instead, Kish told him that he was storing gasoline. He was concerned that they were headed toward war, and if that were the case, he wanted to be sure that he had plenty of fuel saved in case of rationing. The officer, satisfied with this explanation, let the matter go. When the heir apparent of the Austro-Hungarian throne was assassinated on June 28, 1914, Kish's prediction came true. It's likely that Kish had military experience, as the common army of Austria-Hungary had mandatory service in the 1890s when he would have been of age. And at the start of World War II, Kish was drafted into the Royal Hungarian Landwehr and assigned to the 40th Honved Infantry Brigade. As he prepared to ship out, Bella made arrangements for his rent to be paid and gave Mrs. Jakubik a key to the home. He gave her a second key to a room inside, an office just off his bedroom, but made her promise to never enter it. No one in Zinkota would ever see him again. After several months of fighting on the Russian front, Kish had been transferred to a different unit. His unit had suffered a crushing defeat at Krajujevic. He was captured by the Serbians and was reported to have died of typhus in a Serbian prison camp. But when the Austrian army arrived and liberated the prisoners, he was found to still be alive. After the liberation, when three other Austrian soldiers were captured, Kish led the effort to rescue them, killing or wounding the Serbian patrol and freeing his countrymen. During the skirmish, though, he was shot through the side, and the bullet damaged both of his lungs. Three days later, he died. Again. And this time, he was buried by his comrades. His heroism was commemorated, with his name being inscribed on Sinkoda's Roll of Honor. But what sort of vampire would Bella Kish have been if he'd have let a little thing like death stop him? In fact, Kish would be reported to have been seen and to have died, only to be seen again a few years later for the next several decades. Believing that Kish had died on the battlefield, Detective Nagy and the Budapest police held hearings on their investigation in 1916. One witness, likely Kish's neighbor, a man listed as Mr. Littman, testified that he had last heard from Kish in November of 1915, several months after Kish had originally been reported to have died of typhus. The book seemed to be closed, though, when another witness, an officer listed only as Corporal Majda, a man who had served alongside Bela Kish, testified that he had watched Kish die in a hospital in Valkovo, Serbia. But Detective Nagy never seemed to believe that Kish was dead. On October 4th of 1916, he received information stating that Bela Kish was in a hospital in Serbia, so he quickly hopped aboard a train and went to investigate, but by the time he arrived, Belakish was dead again. Or rather, someone was. Despite the identification papers appearing to belong to the right man, when Nagy described the man that he'd been looking for to the nurse to confirm that it was Kish, it became clear that they weren't the same person. Kish would have been in his early 40s, but the nurse who tended to the dead man said that he was only in his 20s. Police theorized that Kish had exchanged identities with the young man, and had escaped before they arrived. 
Three years later, in 1919, Louisa Roost, one of Bella Kish's previous victims who survived being robbed, strangled, and left for dead, and several others reported seeing Kish near the Margaret Bridge, the same place where he'd stalked victims using the identity of Franz Hoffman. But police were unable to locate him. In 1920 or 1921, a member of the French Foreign Legion reported that while sitting around a campfire, a soldier named Hoffman had often bragged about his skill as a strangler, particularly with a garrote. Several articles even claim that Hoffman claimed to have loved, fleeced, and murdered women in a small Hungarian village. But by the time that authorities arrived to question him, Hoffman, or Kish, had apparently deserted. In 1929, authorities believed that they had found him hiding in the strangest of places, a Romanian prison. Franz Wimmer had been sentenced to life behind bars in Romania, but had escaped sometime before the First World War. In 1919, he'd rather inexplicably turned himself back in, and after his return, Wimmer had been a model prisoner. A decade later, a clerk at the prison was filing old paperwork when, reading through the files of the inmates whose names he recognized, he read a description of Franz Wimmer that clearly did not fit the description of the man in the cell who had, for ten years, answered to that name. He did, however, somewhat look like the description given of murderer Bella Kish. And the man in the prison cell not only fit Kish's physical description, but he also had a scar on the back of his right hand that matched what police in Budapest had listed as an identifying detail. And that, to the guards at the prison, solidified their belief that they'd caught Kish. Authorities concluded that perhaps Bella Kish and Franz Wimmer's paths had crossed during World War I, and somehow, either by simple trade, theft, or perhaps having lifted them off of the body of a man who died on the battlefield, Kish had acquired Wimmer's papers. Then, tired of running from authorities, he decided to turn himself into the Romanian police and live out the rest of his days peacefully behind bars, serving a life sentence, but avoiding the death sentence that he'd surely received from the Hungarian courts. When Franz Wimmer was informed that they believed that he was, in fact, the murderer Bella Kish, and that the prison intended to turn him over to the Hungarian authorities, he attempted escape. And when that failed, he attempted suicide. It's unclear what happened to Franz Wimmer, either the real one or the man discovered to be living his life in prison under Wimmer's name, as there are no further reports to be found. However, Hungarian officials continued their search for Kish. In 1932, Henry Oswald, a New York homicide detective with an eidetic, or photographic memory, was convinced that he had spotted Kish at the Times Square subway station. He called out to him, but the man disappeared in the crowd before Oswald could catch up. If you want to believe the idea that Kish was a vampire, you can note here that the picture that Oswald, a man nicknamed Camera Eye due to his ability to remember faces, would have identified Kish by was nearly 20 years old at that point. After almost two decades, all of which had apparently been spent moving from place to place as a fugitive, had Kish not aged? In 1936, a rumor spread that Kish was working as a janitor at an apartment building off of 6th Avenue in New York. But, as with every other time his whereabouts were reported, by the time the authorities arrived, the man they came to look for had disappeared and had left no information behind. In 1941, Hungarian police believed that they had finally found him in Oran, Algiers, still practicing the tinsmith trade, and married with two young children. By now, the Bella Kish who'd lived in Sincota 25 years before should have been at least in his 60s. The man shared Kish's profession. He fit both the description and the photos of Kish, short, stocky, and athletic, with wide-set blue eyes and a bristling blonde mustache turned up at the corners 
and he had papers showing an honorable discharge from the French Foreign Legion in which he was cited for exceptional bravery. However, extradition laws prevented him from being returned to Hungary. Algiers was under the control of the French colonial authorities who noted that they'd have to send him back to Paris for extradition and, thanks in no small part to Hungary's allies in Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo, the authorities in Paris had other concerns at the moment. After that, Belukish disappeared into mythology. As one writer noted, despite all of his alleged globetrotting, no other murders were ever attributed to him. That, of course, doesn't mean that he stopped killing. It just means that others weren't ever found. It's unknown when, or if you prefer the vampire story, if Belakish ever died. You have been listening to episode two, Belakish, the vampire of Zincoda. If you enjoy Epitaph, please take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Want a place to connect with us or discuss episodes with others? Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at, at EpitaphPod. If you've got a few extra dollars, please consider joining our Patreon. There, you'll get access to Epitaph, the others, our special subscriber-only bonus show, and other exclusive content. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by Epitaph Podcast. The content of this podcast is copyright Epitaph, Incorporated 2019, all rights reserved.